Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, friends, today is, once again, Trinity Sunday. And it, uh, it's a day for us to just pause a little bit and, and reflect on... Um, this whole mystery of the oneness and the threeness of God, that those things could be real all together at one time. And, you know, if we're really honest with each other, this is not an easy thing to get your mind around, really. We talk about it with some ease, but it's not easy to do at all. And, uh, but it's crucial to our understanding of our Christian faith. It's, it's very key to our understanding of it. And, uh, but it's also very puzzling to folks who stand outside of Christian faith. If you've ever had a conversation with someone like that and you talk about the Trinity, you know, like you do in casual conversation, um, <clears throat> they'll often say, it sounds like you're talking about three gods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the reason it sounds that way to them is that very often when we talk about the Trinity, it sounds like we're talking about three gods. Now, I know we don't mean to do that, uh, but so it is helpful for us to just stop every so often and pause and reflect on why do we talk about God in the way that we do? And why is that even important to us? Well, <clears throat> as many have noted, the word Trinity doesn't even appear in the Bible, which is fine. Uh, but it also is a concept, a, a doctrine, a teaching that, that didn't just emerge out of thin air, nor did it emerge out of some smoke-filled back room with, you know, mean-spirited theologians who decided to come up with something really difficult and abstract for people to wrestle with forever. But rather, it came as a response to, to the New Testament testimony about Jesus' relationship with God the Father, of the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, and how people were actually experiencing the way that God was enacting his mission in the world through his people. And even when we look back in Scripture, way back in Scripture, we start seeing some interesting dynamics in the life of God that, that suggest a kind of, of threeness in God's creative work on behalf of the world. And you can see this in the opening lines of Genesis, where it reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said let there be light, and there was light. Even in this early, early text, we see that God has created. God's spirit hovers. God's word proceeded. And, and the prologue of John's gospel actually echoes that very creative dynamic, a very familiar text to all of us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. You know, Jesus' earliest followers would have experienced him, first of all, as a fully human person. Uh, but over time, they begin to see something more in him, that he was not simply a messenger sanctioned by God, someone sent by God just to go get a job done. But he was the embodiment of God himself, 
a man in whom the fullness of God dwelt, one who was in the form of God but never exploited his equality with God, or so our scriptures tell us. Now, for some people, when they would hear that kind of language, they would call it blasphemy. But for the disciples, it was all sign and wonder. It was, it was a sign because these words pointed to something beyond them. And it was wonder because it all caused people to absolutely marvel at the incredible mystery of God. <clears throat> in, a, uh, in a conversation that Jesus was having once with his disciples, his disciple Philip made a, a request to Jesus that, that many people are glad that he made and have wanted to make this request themselves. Philip says, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. You know, just give us the goods, Jesus. Um, well, if, if and, and his thinking may have been, if, if our God is as real as, as our people have said, um, and as interested in us as Jesus claims that he is, then, then why can't we just catch a glimpse of him? And, and given the circumstances, it wasn't unreasonable, really, for Philip to ask this of Jesus. Uh, I mean, to be clear, Jesus spoke of God very intimately and constantly, spoke of God as, as his father and, and suggested things about God that made some people very, very hopeful and others absolutely furious. So Philip, and I suspect he was asking this question for more than just himself, he just wanted to cut to the chase, you know, just show us this heavenly father, let us see who it is you're talking about, now, it would not have been that these, these followers of Jesus, these young Jewish guys, had no concept of God. They, they certainly would have had some kind of a concept. It was that the intimacy with which Jesus spoke suggested that God was closer to them than they had ever imagined. And then Jesus says something that would probably have startled his friends at this point. He said, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No one has ever seen God, we're told. But it is the only Son, the one close to the Father's heart, who has made this God known to us. Now, I want to pause here and uh, offer a word about Jesus' designation as the Son of God. Now, I've done this multiple times, but I think it bears repeating. Because sometimes the idea of such a son, a son of God, in people's minds is kind of reduced down to the very equivalent of a, very, of a human father and son relationship where God is the dad and Jesus is the kid who is ultimately sacrificed for the sake of the world. I mean, I mean when it's reduced down that way, it gets a little bit grotesque. But to speak of Jesus as the Son is to speak of him as the only one who truly comes from God, enjoying a relationship of intimacy and love that can only be roughly compared to the very best of all human familial relationships, the love between a father and a son. In another sense, though, Son also suggests that Jesus is the representative of all that Israel was ever meant to be. Because in Scripture, Israel is referred to in the Old Testament multiple times as God's son, God's firstborn son. When, when God sends Moses out to barter with the Pharaoh, he says, you tell Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn son. Uh, so this, this predates even Jesus. But Israel never fulfilled what God had intended. So 
Jesus is the son who perfectly enacts God's intentions for the world. Jesus is the fully obedient son of God, sent by God and embodying all that Israel was ever meant to be. And this one true God's only begotten one, the word made flesh who's lived among us, shares with God the Father an eternal relationship of love. Now, we often think of relationship as as a way that we talk about how how people interact with one another. Uh, Relationships can be good, they can be bad, they can be intimate, they can be really, really distant, they can be friendly, they can be hostile, they can be all kinds of things, but, but in a way... A relationship is more than just a description of something. It's kind of a thing unto itself, if you stop and think about it. And you have probably experienced this, if you stop and think. If you've ever come up on some folks that you know, in a, say, a, a couple people in a restaurant or a coffee shop, and you know them, and you go over to greet them, but you suddenly realize as you step to their table that there's something going on here that does not include you. <clears throat> and it's almost like you hit this, at least initially, this little wall of resistance, resistance where you're, someone's about to say, yes, may we help you? Um, maybe it's only me that's experienced this. I don't, I don't know. Maybe the rest of you are just immediately welcomed in. Um, but, but you get a sense that the, that the relationship that the people have ha- has almost a tangible presence to us. In a way, it's almost like that relationship is the third person at that table. Well, when we speak of God the Father and Jesus the Son in relationship, we are speaking of a third reality that not only binds them together but participates with them. This relationship of dynamic love is, as one theologian has put it, the very reality of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of God's love granted to us and granted to the whole world. As the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Romans, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One true God, dynamically related in the threeness of love. Now, throughout John's gospel, we are struck by Jesus' words about his relationship to God the Father. He speaks of a, of a love that's shared between them and a oneness that they enjoy together. And, and it's not just left there. It's a, it's a oneness that Jesus' praise will be evident in, in the relationships of all of his followers with one another. But oddly and tragically, this oneness will not only be characterized by love, it will will also be characterized by persecution, by suffering, and by death. And Jesus prepared his disciples for this when he said to them, I've said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill who kill you will think that by doing so they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. The oneness of God expressed in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit poured out to us and also demonstrated in suffering and death. How do we even begin to think about things like this? You know, I preached here uh, on Trinity Sunday two years ago. 
Uh, and, I, and yes, if you, have, if you have a photographic memory, you notice that I have borrowed from my own sermon, which I almost never do, but I did this time. How much, you know, how much new stuff can you invent on the Trinity, right? Um, but when I preached here on that June, it was in June of 2019, um, my father had died in, in the prior April, on Wednesday of Holy Week of that year. My mother would pass on three weeks later after I pre- preached that sermon. It, tough year, 2019. But 2020 made it all better. Well, anyway, I want to talk about my dad a second. My dad was 95 uh, when he died, <clears throat> and he had been just alert and active and present right up until the last couple of weeks before he died. He was driving his car, crazy, uh, sang in the church choir right up until a couple of weeks before he died. little side note, I think I can say this now two years down the road without choking myself to death, but at his memorial service, the choir sang, and I didn't notice this. They told me about it when the service was over. They left an empty space where he always stood. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that, was, that was really amazing. Well, <clears throat> when my dad died, I was with him, and some of my family members were there as well. Emily was there. And uh, we stood around his bed knowing that he was leaving us. Uh, he was not conscious, and the medical staff assured us that he wasn't feeling any pain. Uh, but his, um, his body still fought, you know, fought to hold on to life. You could just see the, the motions that his body was going through. It was like he, he was rebelling against the onset of death, which, of course, my dad would do. And, and his body, his physical body, was going through the, the pangs of death, suffering the pangs of death. And, and I, I stood by him. On the other side of the bed was my, my sweet niece, and she had her hand on her grandpa's hand, crying her eyes out, and I had my hand on his other hand. And I remember looking down at that hand. It was a working man's hand. Dad worked as a blue-collar guy for most of his career, much of his career. And... Uh, and I thought, man, this, this hand's carried me around when I was a little kid. You know, you, you go through these things when these moments come to you. But it was a profound experience. And uh, I loved my dad. I knew that my dad loved me. Uh, and yet here we were with his body suffering in the flesh, suffering in the, in the aloneness that always characterizes dying. And me, along with my family members, standing in that place of suffering and grief. I didn't suffer in the same way that my dad did. But our shared experience of suffering with dying and grief was a shared suffering grounded in love. When we think of Jesus' suffering and death, we might ask, well, so what does the Trinity really have to do with that? It's such a painful event. On the cross, Jesus even cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I mean, is that what God did? Just simply turned and walked away, dispassionate and just happy to have all the wrongs of the world set right? Well, I mean, those words were the cry of the people of Israel. They are the opening lines to Psalm 22. But at the same time, there really was a kind of forsakenness that was taking place because in the aloneness of dying, a person really does seem to be forsaken by everybody. There may be family and friends standing around as my family was with my dad, but the dying is still going to be a solitary act. And in the end, everybody dies on their own. In a very important way, Jesus, who died for all, died all by himself. He died alone. And in Jesus dying, the father suffers as well. The father does not die. But the father suffers grief at the death of the son. 
In their oneness of relationship, the father and son are bound together in suffering, and that suffering is grounded in eternal love, a love that is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The oneness of God characterized by the dynamic threeness of love, a love that is no stranger to suffering and death. I mean, it it is a lot to think about, a lot to take in, but we're in completely good company. I mean, Christian thinkers have been wrestling around with this for 2,000 years, and so we're in the club now. So what do we do with all of that? Um, People have sometimes fixed themselves on particular images, images or analogies or theological constructs just to sort of say, well, now we've got it right, this whole Trinity thing. Um, but is having a, a, a precise grasp, at least one that we think we have of the Trinity as doctrine, really the end goal of all of this? Or having engaged with the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do we then stand back in awe and wonder and worship? You know, our, our affirmation of the Trinity may really be more of an act of worship than it is a doctrinal absolute. Uh, There is indeed a doctrine of the Trinity that the church has embraced for a long time, and it's important. But if we get too bound up with the analogies and images and even the the propositions that that we think lock us into some kind of precise understanding of the Trinity that just seals the deal and ends the conversation, then we risk losing the posture of worship of the Father through Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. As one theologian says, worship is is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. A very Trinitarian statement about worship. And this has important implications for how we worship. Worship of God, as we know, is is a multifaceted thing. We express it very intimately through singing and through prayer. We, We demonstrate worship through transformed lives, according to Romans 12. We posture ourselves in worship as we attend to Scripture and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now, there have been some folks who who found worship to be a scary thing, that it's, it's the idea of worshiping with fear and trembling, seeing themselves as unworthy, unclean sinners who stand shaking before an angry God who would be absolutely happy to annihilate them if it wasn't for Jesus. Uh, We used to have a handyman that was kind of stuck on that and I think he and I spent more time talking about that than we did him doing handyman things, which he needed anyway. Um, but but that way, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. That isn't how we are to come before God in worship. We, we come before God in a posture of assurance and his acceptance and his love for us. We come before God, first of all, as ones who are beloved and redeemed, summoned by the Father, participating in the generous eternal love that he shares with the Son, and that love is poured out to us by the Holy Spirit. And as the Apostle Paul, who has much to say on this topic, wrote to his friends in Galatia, because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father a true call to intimacy. Worship is the posture that we take 
before the triune God, a, a posture that includes our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in that posture, we, we sing, we pray, we listen, we welcome, we serve, and, and we delight in the love of the Father shared and expressed in and through the only Son and poured out to us by the Spirit. Darren, you can come back if you can. I'm going to have us um, just spend a little quiet time in worship. We, we, we stand before the God who has demonstrated himself, expressed himself as one and three. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I think we show up for church because we think we decided to show up church to church. I, I think sometimes, whether we realize it or not, we're responding to a summons. That God has said, you need to be with your people and come before me in worship. And that's what we're doing here today. And, you know, even talking about just halfway joking about 2020, uh, there's been a lot of suffering for folks over the last year and a half for all kinds of reasons. And maybe you have been struggling with the question, where's, been, where's God been for me in that suffering time? Um, if God can do anything, can he just do something in particular for me? But perhaps we may learn in worship that God has always been present to us. And God suffers in grief as we suffer in the body. And so let's spend a, just a bit of quiet time in worship. And God, we come before you. And we open our lives to you. We open our hearts to you. And we welcome you to inhabit us in a fresh new way by your spirit. And in the best way we know how, we say yes to you with our lives, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.